0: you will, please remain standing and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, verses 21 through 30. This is God's holy word inspired by the Holy Spirit and written for your edification. Please give it your full attention. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute arose, also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, As the one who serves you are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel thus far the reading of God's holy word and you may be seated. Have you ever had a family dispute on a very special day? Whether it was when you're growing up or in your adult life, maybe it was a major holiday or someone in the family's birthday, some type of celebration that was going on and someone says something that sets someone else off. One of the kids is pestering one of the other kids. And when the parent tries to settle it, one of the kids feels that you're taking the side of the other kid. Or maybe it's one of the parents acting like a kid and starts an argument over something silly, but then it turns into something very serious. Now, I personally wouldn't know anything about those kind of things, just things I hear go on in your homes. And I can assure you, uh, if we have had something like that on a time, you know, on occasion, a time or two, I can assure you, it was them who done it, not me. But the point is that something happens that stirs things up in the family, and needless to say, the day that was meant to be so special ends up ruined. Well, Luke records for us an event in this passage that comes close. To what we're talking about. Jesus had earnestly desired to share the Passover meal with them. It was the last time that he would share this meal with them. And it would be the night where he would institute a new supper. A new time of communion with the Lord. Yet one of his disciples would leave to betray him. And the rest of them went to get into a silly argument that almost ruined the night. Or at least, if Christ hadn't been sovereign over the event, uh, could have potentially ruined the night. But Jesus did not let that happen, of course. Instead, he used this situation to teach his disciples a lesson or two about the gospel. Our text begins with Jesus' pronouncement of a curse upon the one that will betray him. He says, But behold, the hand of him that betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Now, let's return for just a moment to our analogy of a family dispute on an important occasion. Imagine being at this special event knowing that someone is out to get you at that event. Now That would make your experience very difficult, wouldn't it? Well, that is precisely the case for Jesus at this Passover feast. He knows that Judas, one of his very own disciples, is going to betray him. In fact, Judas... Did not just have it out for Jesus. We learn from all the gospel accounts that Judas was indeed an enemy of Christ. In John 17 verse 12, Jesus calls him the son of destruction or the son of perdition. Perdition simply means a state of eternal punishment. He was the son of eternal punishment. In this passage, he pronounces a curse upon this son of destruction, saying, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And this is a pronouncement of curse, of condemnation. And this is what happens when you reject the king of kings. The curse of condemnation is all that can be expected from such a rejection. Now everyone, all of us here this evening, in fact, deserves such a curse. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And sin casts us away from a holy God. More specifically, it brings us into an encounter with His wrath with His justice, which requires His wrath. Nevertheless, our loving and merciful Heavenly Father has provided us a way back into His good graces. And that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so a rejection of the King is a rejection of the only way that God has provided for us to avoid the curse of condemnation. Judas rejected it that way. He walked with Jesus throughout his ministry. He heard all of his preaching. He heard of the good news of the gospel. He heard of his teachings, and yet he rejected the gospel. He betrayed the Son of Man. His betrayal was, of course, predestined by God. But that does not eliminate Judas's culpability in the matter, it doesn't erase his guilt. God's sovereignty does not eliminate man's responsibility. We see that again in this passage. Uh, Listen again to what Jesus says. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. Do you hear what's being said? What's happening has been predetermined, it was ordained from before the foundation of the world. But yet man still has responsibility. Christ's betrayal and subsequent crucifixion was predetermined. It all happened according to the definite foreknowledge and plan of God. But those responsible for it on this earth were held accountable for their actions. Because despite being predestined by God... They freely chose to do it. The Westminster Confessions chapter on God's eternal decree says God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as their Thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. Now, the confession here wants to establish that God has predestined all things while protecting at the same time against two possible errors that could come out of that in our thinking. First, it wants to protect against The notion that God's predestining of all things makes him the author of sin. God ordained for sin to happen, but he is not the author of it. He did not cause Adam to sin against Adam's own will. Which leads us to the second error that the confession wants us to avoid. Which is that it does not lead to us to think that his man's will is being forced upon him. That what he does is forced upon him. He is not forced against his will to do those things that God has predestined. Man's will, as the confession stated, is not violated. It's not violated to do things that it does not want to do. And so let's bring this back to our text. It was predestined for Judas to betray Jesus. In fact, it was prophesied about in Psalm 41, verse 9, which says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Clearly, Judas's betrayal was predestined. It was even foretold in that prophecy. And so, too, was Christ's crucifixion predestined. Yet Judas freely chose to betray Jesus. You see, both God's will and Judas's will acted in concurrence with each other. They were not at odds with each other, but acted in concurrence. R.C. Sproul says, God's holy, powerful providence can make use of the wicked intentions of men to bring about the good purposes of his own plan. This does not mean that men are mere automatons or pawns in the hands of God or that divine providence excuses men from the guilt of their own wickedness. Of course, the supreme example of God's control of evil is in the betrayal of Jesus by the hands of Judas. Judas was not forced. He did exactly what he wanted to do. He manifested his own treachery his own lust for power, and his own selfish motives in handing Jesus over to his enemies, end quote. And so, beloved, what this teaches us is that you cannot blame God's predestined plan for the choices that you make. Every sin that you choose to do, you will be held accountable for on the day of judgment. More importantly you will be held accountable for how you respond to the very same gospel that Judas himself heard so many times. You see, if you reject the king of the kingdom, you will receive the curse of eternal condemnation. Just like pitiful Judas. And that is really the most important question you'll be faced with. In this life. And God will hold you responsible for how you answer it. For how you respond to it. And how you answer this question will not only have consequences in the hereafter or for the hereafter. But it will also have consequences for the here and now. You see, a rejection of the king results in a lifestyle of betrayal to the king. It leads to a lifestyle of worshiping other things rather than worshiping the king. Put in a different way, it results in a lifestyle that ultimately leads to serving yourself rather than serving the kingdom. And this is something... The disciples really didn't quite get right away. But before we're too hard on the disciples, we need to admit that this is something that all of us disciples of Jesus fail to get at times. Their failure is often our very own failure. And so, what was their failure? Well, immediately after Jesus pronounced the curse upon his betrayer, they began to question each other to determine who it was that would betray him. And notice the argument that follows after this discussion. Verse 24, Luke writes, A dispute also arose among them, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, at first, that might seem strange that they would go from a discussion about who's going to betray Jesus to then talking about who's going to be the greatest among them. But actually, it really makes perfect sense how such a conversation could arise. One of them says, for example, well, I know it's not going to be me who betrays him because I was the first one he called. Another one says, I know it's not going to be me. Me, because I was with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then another one says, Yeah, but you were the one that didn't have faith when he called you out under the water. True, but you were the one that didn't. Well, I was the one that, well, I must be the greatest because. You see how something like this could have happened, could be discussed. And we think to ourselves, how ignorant, how foolish would they have to be to discuss something like this with Jesus right there in the upper room on the night of the Passover? But do Christians not do this very type of thing even today? Churches judge their greatness by the sizes of their ministries. Pastors judge their greatness by their popularity. Congregants judge their greatness by how spiritual they are. It's no different today than it was in the day of the disciples at the Last Supper. And so here is this special meal that Jesus has earnestly desired to share with his disciples. And like little children, they break out into an argument about who is to be the greatest. Perhaps the disciples in this moment deserved a rebuke from the Lord. But instead, Jesus takes the opportunity to extend grace and to teach them a lesson. Now, every situation is different, and sometimes discipline is necessary. A rebuke would be necessary, but sometimes people learn their lesson more in certain circumstances when grace is extended rather than by issuing strict discipline. And so on this particular occasion, Jesus does not sharply criticize them. No, he uses this opportunity to teach them what a life of following after the king is like. He says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. So Jesus begins to teach them here by way of contrast. He shows them the way that they are to live over against the way it is in the world. To follow after the king of kings is very different than following after the kings of the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles at that time were the nations outside of the people of God. And so Jesus uses this way of speaking to show them or to describe the ways of the world. In the eyes of the world, the kings are considered the greatest because they have the most power. The kings rule over all the people and could, therefore, really live for themselves. In spite of this, he wanted all of his subjects, that is, the king would want all of his subjects to think of him well, would want to think of him as a benefactor, so he would command them to call him as such. Phil Reichen says, this is basically how people still define greatness today. Money, power, and prestige. A clear example comes from Harvard University where MBA students were assigned to to develop a strategic plan entitled, What do I hope to achieve in life after graduation? And their number one priority, he says, was wealth. Number two, notoriety. And number three, status. Yet none of the students said anything in their strategic plans about serving other people. And this is the way that it is with the world. But Jesus says, not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. In other words, for those that follow the king of kings, greatness is defined by acting as the younger and by acting as a servant. What does he mean by saying, let the greatest among you become as the youngest? Well, you see, in their day, and and maybe more so than in our culture today, but the younger honored and respected the experience and wisdom of their elders. They considered what they said as more weighty than their own. That that is my elder. What What he has to say is a value. And so Jesus was saying that in the kingdom of God, you should consider others as more important than yourself. That what they have to say is of great value to you. He's not necessarily saying that the younger should honor the older. That's true. That's another principle that we'll find elsewhere in scripture. But what he's saying here, as Paul says... In Philippians 2.3, is that in humility, we ought to count others as more significant than yourselves. The younger would consider the older as more significant. And so what he's saying is that whoever you're talking to, regardless of their age, regardless of your age, consider what they're saying as of value. Consider them of value and importance and as more significant than yourself. Consider them as worthy of your time, your attention, and your effort. Along these lines, in the kingdom of God, the leader is one who serves. Kings are meant to be servants of their kingdoms. They don't always think of it that way, but that's what they're designed for. And unfortunately, that's not always the way it has gone in history. It's typical for public officials to think that their constituents are there to serve them. But that's not the way that it is in God's kingdom. In the church, those whom God has called to be leaders, the deacons, the elders, are servant leaders, they lead in service their time and energy are meant to nourish, care for and protect the sheep. It's a service of sacrifice, a labor of love. But this is not just the case for ordained offices in the church. We might even think about the wedding celebration last night. And at the wedding service and in the sermon, you know, I spoke about Noah As the leader of his home, he's called to be a servant leader. You husbands are called to be the heads of your household. And that means you are a leader in service. You are to serve your wives. But even beyond these examples, we are all called to carry one another's burdens, we are to help meet each other's needs. We are to build each other up in the faith and in love and in hope. Ephesians 5.21 says that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. As a Christian, the Lord has also made you a leader in this world. And how great an example of love do you set before unbelievers when you seek to serve them? Christ served us even while we were yet enemies of him. And so how do you serve and show love to your enemies? And so do you see how Christ uses this time, this sort of chaos conversation that has gone awry and takes the time knowing that they don't always get what they need to get and he extends grace and he uses it to teach them. He's patient and he teaches them The lesson he taught them that night was not only in word, but also in deed. Luke doesn't actually record this for us, uh, but the Apostle John does. You see, this was the very night also in the upper room that Jesus took off their sandals and washed their feet. That's something in their day That the servant of the house, the bond servant, the house servant would do for those who came into the house. And yet Jesus on his knees took off their sandals and washed their feet. The king of glory washed their feet. And this gives further understanding to Christ's words when he says, For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. And so following after the king means living like the king. He is not like the kings of the Gentiles. He actually is a benevolent king king that serves his people. And that is precisely what the Lord's Supper was showing them that night. They were at the Passover feast, but he would institute the Lord's Supper there. And that's what it was showing them that he had come to serve them. He would even lay down his own life in service to them. His body would be broken and his blood would be shed. A total act of service to save his people, to save wretched sinners like you and me just as he says in mark 10:45 the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many and so if you are a follower of the king of kings and that is what your king has done for you and in following after him you should imitate in serving others and this is how your life should be characterized in this life Leon Morris writes, Jesus is not saying that if his his followers wish to rise to great heights in the church, they must first prove themselves in a lowly place. He is saying that faithful service in a lowly place is itself true greatness. You see, I think too many times we have been... Influenced by the world's definition of greatness. But when we follow after the king. Then where else are we to turn to look to greatness. But to our savior Jesus Christ. And so Jesus has taught his disciples. He has taught us two lessons thus far. But he has one more lesson for them. A lesson about the believer's life in the age to come. He says, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father has assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on, the, on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And this lesson is directed first and foremost to the original disciples. Though, after looking at that, we will look at the implications that it has for us as well. Now, he promises his apostles a kingdom. Specifically, his kingdom. He, of course, is the king of that kingdom, but he promises his disciples that they would have a share in dominion over that kingdom. This promise is about the promise of the coming of the kingdom and its final manifestation when Christ returns. The kingdom is not yet, at this time, in its fullness. But when Christ comes, it will be complete. And the original disciples of the Lord will have a position of authority over the 12 tribes of Israel, as Jesus puts it. But by this, Jesus does not mean that they will rule only over Jewish believers and not over Gentile believers. No, to speak of the 12 tribes of Israel was an ancient way. It was at that time a way of referring to God's people, which are made up now of both Jew and Gentile, the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham that from him would come one who would provide blessing to every family of the world, to all the families of the world, not just Jew, but also to the Gentile. And so the apostles, he says, will have a place of prominence in the kingdom of God. But secondarily, this is a promise that pertains to all of God's people. The disciples may have a place of privilege, but Jesus promises something very similar to every believer in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. He writes, The one who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And it is here again that we see the benevolence of our God and king. One who even sits upon his throne will allow us to sit there alongside him. Remember that when we were adopted into the family of God, he made us co-heirs with Christ. What Christ inherits, we, beloved, inherit as well. This does not mean that we are equals with Christ in terms of his being. He will always, in that way, be greater than us. Nevertheless, he shares with us what he has come to possess. And so we will all share In the reign of Christ. But we must remember that that reign is defined as a servant leadership. He also says that we will have a seat at the table where we may eat and drink with him. And again we have a picture of intimate table fellowship that we will share with God. And the blessing here is not so much on the eating and drinking but who you are eating and drinking with. Who you are seated at the table with. The king has given you a seat at his table. And so we have two images here. That Jesus wants us to see. You see by sitting on his throne. He is saying you will have a position to serve others. But by sitting at the table. He is saying you also will be served. I can't help but think that this is being pictured each week as we partake of the Lord's Supper. As Christ serves the disciples, so He will serve all His people from east and from west who come to recline at the table in the new heavens and the new earth. Our God and King is telling us that He will give Himself to us in an intimate communion bond that will be eternal and in that day, there will be no one who comes to the table that might ruin the meal. For it will be a perfect, eternal day. May that day come quickly. And to him be all praise and glory, both now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ. Who first and foremost came to secure our promised eternal inheritance, to redeem us from our sins and to prepare us for heaven itself, but also, in doing so, gave us the perfect example for how to live and how to follow after Him. We pray that you might supernaturally work your grace in us by your Spirit, that we too might be those who serve, That we might be those who consider others as more important than ourselves. That we might not seek to serve only self. Or to seek primarily self. But to seek to serve others. This we pray in Jesus name. Amen.